You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi folks, this is John Horgan. Welcome to Mind Body Problems. This podcast is an outgrowth of a book I wrote, also called Mind Body Problems, about consciousness, free will, and other mind-related mysteries. You can read the book for free online at mindbodyproblems.com, or you can buy an ebook or paperback from Amazon. On this podcast, I talk to subjects of my book and other mind-body thinkers. In this particular episode, I talk to Bernardo Kastrup, a computer scientist and philosopher who thinks materialism is wrong-headed. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay. Now we're recording. I, I wish I'd recorded uh, what we were just <laughs> what we were just talking about. Um, I think uh, I think people on uh, on Blogging Heads TV are used to my um, my blunders and screw ups. <laughs> I, I'm hoping it's part of the charm of the show. <laughs> it's real here, man. This isn't polished. This isn't manufactured. It's it's real. Real people, real life. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I'll, uh, I guess I'll do, uh, start with introductions and then we'll, we'll just get going. Um, so my name is John Horgan. I'm a longtime correspondent for Blogging Heads TV and uh, I'm a science writer. I teach at an engineering school, Stevens Institute of Technology. And, um, Last year, I wrote a book called Mind Body Problems about what I think is pretty obviously the deepest question that there is. Uh, we have minds and, and we have bodies and how the hell are they connected? I, I think, I, I sort of think of it as the problem toward which all other problems converge, no matter what uh aspect of reality you're wondering about if you think about it long enough eventually you will arrive at the mind body problem yeah. um and so i i actually bob wright the the uh the founder uh you know the the mogul who presides over blogging head cv he asked me to create this little this little uh show mind body problems and i'm supposed to interview uh deep thinkers about the mind-body problem, and so thank you. Obviously, <laughs> that's what you are. Um, so, can you can you uh, begin just by saying who you are and and what your background is, and and if you want to have a little attitude, that's fine because I know some people are saying, "Who the hell is this guy who thinks he solved the mind-body problem?" <laughs> so, so what what what's your background? What are your credentials and that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, Bernardo Kastrup is my name. I have a PhD in computer engineering, specialization in reconfigurable computing. I have another PhD in philosophy, uh, specialized in philosophy of mind and ontology. Um, I've worked um, at CERN. I've worked at Philips Research. Today I do, uh, to earn my living, I do corporate strategy which is a relatively easy job, pays well, and gives me sort of freedom. You know, I'm not in an academic institution. Um, I've written now uh, eight books, seven of which are published, one of which is in the pipeline, and a number of 
journal articles, academic journal articles on science and philosophy over the years. And I am, a, thanks to you, to a large extent, three years ago, I'm a regular contributor to Scientific American. Yeah, I know. It's uh, every time I know whenever one of your articles has been published because it immediately shoots to the top of the most read list. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion and people write to me and say, hey, did you see that latest thing by Bernardo? Um, so I guess you and I met uh, in, in the fall of, 2016 at Sages and Scientists, this conference put on by uh, Deepak Chopra. And um, I'm not a scientist, so I, I guess that makes me a sage. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so too, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we hit it off. And you had this, um, you had this idea uh, that uh, this way of looking at the mind-body problem that I found really um striking and i i'm still i'm still coming to terms with it we have uh talked about it uh we talked about it a lot then um we uh we also talked about it at a, a meeting i think it was i guess it was uh last, last year, year in yeah. in switzerland um Excellent. yeah and so i was hoping you could explain it and by the way i you know um you have this new book out and uh, I know you're going to tell us some of the, the things that are, that are, that are in the book called the idea of the world, which is, I'd say a, a very, a pretty sober um, uh, description of your or label for your, your view of the mind body problem. My personal favorite of your books, uh, at least as far as the title goes is why materialism is baloney. <laughs> that was a provocative on. one. <laughs> I think that might be my favorite all-time title for a, a book of very serious philosophy. It, it is to my bestseller. The idea yeah. of the world is coming close, but uh, why materialism is baloney is still my bestseller. Yeah, people know know what I mean they know what they're in for with, with a title like that um, but so I wonder if you can give us a a brief description of um, of your idea after which I want to get a little biography from you and then we'll come back and talk about your 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 idea in uh, in greater depth but first Let's say you're uh, you're on a morning TV show here in the, in the United States. Your book has become a giant bestseller, and you have to describe to one of these TV hosts who's slathered in makeup, um, and you're there in the studio, and you've got like a minute to describe your theory. Okay. Well, what would I say? Yeah. Um, I don't think there is a real mind-body problem. I don't think there is a real heart problem of consciousness. I think these are, uh, we corner ourselves conceptually into an impossible situation, but it only exists uh, in our intellect. Uh, The origin of this problem is when we conceptualize this ontological category we call matter, which is supposed to be outside and independent of mind, uh, which of course is an abstraction of mind, this, this, this idea of matter, it's, it's an explanatory abstraction. We postulate it to explain the regularities of experience, the fact that I can change the universe by an act of volition, uh, 
that we seem to be separate minds inhabiting the same planet. So we, we come up with that explanatory abstraction in mind, and then we try to reduce mind to an abstraction of mind. That, that's never going to work. It's like chasing our tails at light speed. I think what nature is telling us is that, look, from the inside, I feel who I am. There is something it is like to be me. From the outside, that thing that I am looks like a body, a physical body. So clearly what we call a body is the extrinsic appearance, the outer image of conscious inner experience. And since my body is made of matter, I think all matter is the outer appearance of inner experience, which doesn't mean that my mobile phone is conscious in and of itself. It means only that the inanimate universe as a whole uh, 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 is conscious and that every living being is conscious too. And I think living beings are just dissociated complexes, dissociated alters of the, this uh, universal mind. And then there is only mind and there is no hard problem of consciousness and there is no combination problem in panpsychism because consciousness is fundamentally unitary to begin with. And this is... Uh... This is not a novel idea. In fact, it's an idea with, with deep philosophical roots, right? This is something that, uh, Bishop, I, Bishop I know. Barclay. Yeah, Bishop Barclay. I, I always want to say Berkeley, um, but it's pronounced, it's pronounced Barclay. And, uh, and, um, Russell, uh, was, this is idealism. Russell was also an idealist. Uh, uh, if you mean Bertrand Russell, uh, yeah. now he, he was a monist, but he was more of a dual aspect monist. An idealist would say everything at the bottom of the chain of reduction, everything is consciousness or mind. I will use these terms interchangeably. Uh, but there are many varieties of the idealism. If you go back enough in time, you, you know, in the Vedas, in the Upanishads, the Hindu Upanishads, you have idealism there. And then, of course, you have Barclay which was a subjective idealist. He thought that uh, uh, the qualities of our perception, the world we see in perception, is itself irreducible. Um, I disagree with that. I think there are what Kant called noumena. There is something out there beyond me as an individual. In other words, outside me as an altar of universal consciousness. But that something out there is itself experiential. It is itself a set of mental processes which appear on the screen of my perception as the physical world. Uh, the person, I think, the philosopher in, back in history that would come closest to my position, I think, is uh, um, uh, Arthur Schopenhauer. Um, the problem of Schopenhauer is that uh, there isn't consensus about how to interpret him. And I wrote a book about that, which will come out uh, next year. I think Schopenhauer was outright an idealist, both a subjective idealist and an objective ideal, idealist. For Schopenhauer, what is out there is not the physical world. Physical world is just representation in our minds. What is really out there is what he called uh, the will, which basically means a set of conscious volitional states. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think he can be correctly interpreted like that. So... You could almost see the, the 20th century, the modern era, as a divergence away from what was once a, a maybe a dominant idea, a dominant way of looking at reality and, and of the, the mind-body problem. Yeah, I mean, if you go back, I mean, this, the shift that we see in the 20th century, the roots of it is in, are in Darwinism, um, a move away from any sort of view of nature as something 
as a result of something transcendent, some god or some divinity. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, idealism has historically been associated with religion. Certainly in the East, Bishop Barclay himself was a priest, uh, as we know, uh, um, uh, Hegelian idealism, Hegel, uh, in the late 18th and early 19th century, was the philosophy that was adopted by a number of uh, Protestant churches in Europe. Uh, so there is this connection. And when we took a, 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 um, a curve away from religion and spirituality late in the 19th uh, century, you know, Nietzsche declaring that God is dead and so on, uh, and then we, we, we joined that with logical positivism uh, and that philosophical sort of current, uh, which is not very old. It's a, a century and something old. Uh, it's still echoing today, but since the turn of the 21st century, things seems, seem to be uh, changing again. I mean, uh, since early this century, uh, there are open conversations about different forms of panpsychism. Uh, there is cosmopsychism now, which is just, you know, a new name for idealism. So the discussion is opening up again. Yeah, I, I have seen evidence of that at the meetings I've, I've, uh, been at with you at the Deepak Chopra meeting because I'd say he's an idealist. And by the way, he was, uh, I, I also talked to him on this show. Um, and at that meeting, you know, I, I, I knew that he had this very uh, sort of traditional spiritual view of, uh, of reality in which mind is, is fundamental. Um, but I was surprised that there were also, these scientists from fancy institutions who are saying something, if not identical, were certainly challenging conventional materialism. So there, there's you, and then there were uh, several other people. Um, Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. I, I find it very striking. I, I just want to go back to what you just said about the association with uh, of idealism with religion traditionally is that um, here's where maybe I can, I can get into your biography. Um, were you religious? Were you raised in a religious family? What, what's your own spiritual background? If any, uh, my father was pretty much a, a rationalist uh, interested in science. He was an architect, but uh, he had, he had a subscription to scientific American oh. Um, and he was a hobbyist. He used to build electronic circuits, uh, model airplanes, radio control. So all these engineering, science-oriented things. He had astronomy magazines. So I had that. I, I carried that background from him. Uh, shaped me very early. My mother is Catholic, uh, practicing to some extent, but she never really tried to push me in that direction. I didn't go to Sunday school. I, I was baptized, but not confirmed. I didn't have to go to mass, which I didn't uh, when I was a kid. Uh, but still, the fact that she she is Catholic, uh, there were some images at home, you know, a crucifix and an image of the Virgin Mary. So uh, th that is familiar to me. Uh, in, in, a, in a way that only when you're exposed to it as a child, it can be really familiar uh, to you. Uh, but I went to university, I was 17 years old, and uh, that, that just fell out of my life. Uh, I was too busy with science, technology, you know, finding it extraordinary and amazing. And, and uh, my 
first job out of the university was to go to, to work at CERN, which is a kind of you know, the cathedral of, of, of physics. Um, and only much later, already in my 30s, uh, once I really started refining my personal views of the nature of reality, only then that I realized, that, hey, there is an association here with religious mythology. Uh, they just cannot be interpreted literally. Otherwise, you know, it's just absurd. But if you interpret them in, with more depth, uh, then there's clearly a resonance uh, there. In other words, the roots of your uh, of your modern um, philosophy are connected in some way to Catholicism. Is that what you were just no, saying? No, I think it eventually, much later in my life, it resonated. But uh, the reason I, I started developing the views I have today, uh, you know, at, at a younger age, I was working with artificial intelligence. And as a young, as a young man, you know, you have these fantasies about creating a conscious machine and sort of being a father in that way, you know, in a non-conventional way. I mean, you, you still see this archetypal psychological reaction in many people today working on AI. Um, and then I started thinking, you know, I, I can emulate lots of cognitive functions with algorithms or with computer chips, but what reason do I have to believe that these functions, as, as they are performed will be accompanied by experience. Why there should be anything it is like to perform these functions. And that sort of, you know, I, I, I couldn't make uh, sense of that until I, I realized that, hey, uh, I'm, I, I'm in a corner, in an impossible corner here, because I put myself in there through an unexamined assumption, which is that consciousness is, is in some way created. Well, in fact, you know, for all we know, Every act of creation happens within consciousness because that's all we have. Whatever we have never been conscious of might as well never have existed. Uh, if, if I'm not conscious to experience, whatever is out of this is pure abstraction. It's a theoretical abstraction. And, and then I started refining uh, this view through a number of ways, reading, you know, um, getting together with people who had similar questions, similar doubts, similar, similar views. And back in 2009, uh, it got to a point where I started writing. Um, you've written, uh, pardon me if this is too personal. No, it's okay. Uh, but uh, you've written about psychedelics and, and we're going to, I want to get into that, but I'm curious about whether you have had what you might call mystical experiences resulting from psychedelics or in any other way. And there, and because I think these kinds of experiences generally turn out to be relevant to somebody's intellectual views. They've certainly been relevant to my intellectual views. So, Absolutely. Um, when I when I had I, I had psychedelics for the first time late in my life, my late thirties, mm -hmm. um, and by that time I had already written uh, uh, a, a book at least. Um, but the experience of uh, psychedelics is definitely how how to say that. I could make sense of my psychedelic experience because of all the thinking I had already put in into these ideas of philosophy. And to me, it was a confirmation. I mean, you could say, well, I, I was already primed to believe that even before the experience. So that's why I think it's a confirmation. But uh, I can't help but to think that, hey, my psychedelic experiences match pretty much 
with my views of the nature of reality, the nature of mind, the nature of life, uh, and what should happen when you ingest a psychedelic. Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty significant in that sense. So it was more of a more a confirmation of um, of the views that you were already developing intellectually and rationally rather than a cause of those views? I don't think it was the cause because I already had the views. Um, so it's safe to say it certainly was a confirmation. But uh, you see, the experience of a psychedelic can be so profound that it would be unfair to say that it didn't influence how my thoughts evolved after that. Yeah. It probably did in, in subliminal ways that I'm not metacognitive of. Uh, I, I, if I had to bet, I would bet uh, it definitely influenced how my thoughts evolved since that first experience. So, um, I mean, th- there's so many questions I could ask you. One is, wh- what does your theory imply about God? God seems to me to be the concept of God as a kind of intelligence. So I was raised Catholic as well. And I think of, of God, what I was taught when I was a kid, as um, this, as as a con- cosmic consciousness, an intelligence pervading uh, all of reality, um, it's omniscient, it's omnipotent, uh, all of that stuff. But it's a mind, um, and so what does what does your mind body philosophy imply about the existence of God? Is it compatible with ideas of God? I would, based on my understanding of the word God, I would say it definitely is. But of course, this is probably the most loaded word in the history of uh, humankind. So if you say that, you don't know how people will understand you because they all have a different understanding of what God means. Uh, But you you gave a nice introduction. Uh, If God is omniscient, conscious of all, then I think it is compatible because the root of what I'm saying is that everything can be reduced to a universal consciousness. That, that is my reduction base. I explain everything in terms of a universal consciousness, even my own limited personal consciousness, yours, the inanimate world and all life. Um, and then would it be fair to call that universal consciousness God? I think it would. It's all encompassing. It's omniscient. Uh, but then you used another word, it's intelligent, which seems to hint at uh, premeditation, rational thinking, self-reflection, uh, metacognition. Then those features, are, are, I don't think, are necessary for, for mind at large, for universal consciousness. I think self-reflection, the ability to turn the contents of your mind into objects of thought, in other words, to think about your own thoughts, to know that you experience. And that comes in addition to experiencing itself. Not only your experience, you know that you experience. If you can do that, then you can plan, you can, you can, uh, you can be deliberate about the choices you make. I think that feature has evolved in, through life, through you know, human beings, as far as we know, are the only example of, uh, of a mental complexes that can self-reflect, that are conscious at a metacognitive level and therefore can plan, can deliberate. I don't think the mind behind the, the inanimate universe as a whole, I don't think that mind or that consciousness is necessarily deliberate. Actually, I don't think it is deliberate. I don't think it is. it has planned this. I think uh, a word that would be more fair would be it is instinctual. And that's why the laws of physics are so 
predictable, so stable. Uh, you know, a, a crocodile is very predictable because it's not a self-reflective being. It's instinctive. And it, once you figure out the patterns and regularities of its instinctive reactions, you know exactly what it's going to do. I think the, the, the consciousness behind the inanimate universe acts instinctively. The laws of nature are the regularities of its behavior, which can then be fairly well uh, predicted. And we are just dissociated segments, dissociated alters of this universal consciousness, all life. And within the alters, evolution has led to self-reflection, to the ability to metacognize and be deliberate and make choices. In other words, to supplant our instinctual drives. I'm not driven purely by instinct, although I certainly have them. Schopenhauer would call that the will, the will underlying me. I certainly have those, but I can supplant it. I, I can master it. I can make different choices. To what extent, it's unclear, but to some extent at least, that is the case. So, all right, I think you have distinguished yourself from conventional um, religious conceptions of the world because it seems to me an essential feature of of God and, and the great monotheisms that he it whatever has a plan yeah has a purpose which is spelled out in various holy scriptures and generally the purpose is you know he he wants us to behave in a certain way uh worship him or whatever and then we get various rewards so that so your your philosophy has nothing like that well certainly not necessarily I, i i am again with schopenhauer on this i think you know, at, at a fairly high level, if you look around the world and, and the history of mankind and we see what happened, all the suffering, all the cruelty, I mean, the, 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 the unfathomable injustices uh, and pain that has gone on, it, it's, it's hard to think that uh, a self-reflect being planned this out on purpose for this to happen. So I, I am with Schopenhauer that I, I rather think that it's an instinctive mind. The only argument against it, and I think it's a very strong argument, and I, I, I still don't know how to reconcile my views with that, is the fine-tuning of the universal constants. That is, it, it is too fine-tuned, it's too striking, and I, I rather that it were not so, <laughs> because then my thinking would be easier, I, I think there would be more closure for me. But the fact that it is so fine-tuned, I mean, I, I cannot entertain ideas like, well, there are, there's an infinitude of universes and we just happen to be in the correct one. I think these are two, two inflationary ideas, too abstract, too inflationary. You basically have to say that everything that could have been, in fact, is in some other parallel universe. I mean, this is inconceivably inflationary. There is nothing more inflationary than that. So I don't buy into that. But then I have an issue, you know, how do I deal with the fine tuning? I don't know how to deal with that. Yeah. So you're, you're, bringing up the problem of evil there, which is actually my main objection to conventional uh, ideas of God. Uh, so I actually find I am struck by fine-tuning as well and also just by how good life can be and what an extraordinary adventure it can be. Life is this fantastically inventive movie, if you want to put it in that that kind of crude way, how could this arise from random collisions of matter? You know, the, the kind of ultra materialist scenario, just for me, it doesn't work because of how um, 
dramatic and wonderful life can be. But then the flip side of that, if you imagine that, you know, there's this loving God behind it is the extraordinary pain and, and suffering and unfairness that, that uh, we're all familiar with. Um, so let me, I, let me ask you this. And I, and I, I think I put this question to you uh, when I first met you is in what way, if any, is your worldview consoling? Uh, you know, one of the complaints about materialism is that uh, it, it sort of takes away our sense of the sacred. Um, it, it's so reductionist that it, it leeches existence of all meaning and, and wonder. You're familiar with all that stuff. So um, what can you give us along those lines that, that can um, – comfort us um you know if if uh if it's not a loving god who's got some kind of plan for us well my views are not consoling to me and we we have we've had this discussion the greatest fear the greatest greatest source of anxiety for mankind throughout most of history until a little over maybe until 200 years ago has been the experiential unknown of the afterlife. Yeah. What you will experience after death. Maybe you go to hell and you will burn in the fires of hell forever. Or, or even if you don't believe in hell, but you believe that consciousness continues, what is going to happen? I mean, there certainly is potential for suffering in consciousness, right? We have it in life. If consciousness, persi- consciousness persists, there is potential for that afterwards. It's just that it's a complete unknown. It escapes Every reference point you have in life, every category you have in life, all those go out of the window. Um, so it's an enormous, has been historically, an enormous source of anxiety. And um, reductive materialism has uh, taken, uh, taken that off the table. You are guaranteed that all of your problems, all of your suffering, all of your pain, guaranteed, one day they will end. <laughs> there will be an end. I mean, that's extraordinarily consoling to me. Yeah. Uh, right. So, but because of the insoluble problems of materialism, you know, the hard problem of consciousness and everything that comes with it, I don't believe in that tale anymore. Um, it is a consoling fantasy, but I, I can't buy it. I, I'm too committed to what I truly believe is true as opposed to what I think is comforting to me. Um, so my worldview entails that, okay, if I am a dissociated segment of universal consciousness and life is the image of this dissociative process, then death is the image of the end of the dissociation. I will then reintegrate into the broader phenomenal space or the experiential space of, of universal consciousness. And then is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? I have no idea. <laughs> so that that historical source of anxiety to me is very present. I have that anxiety, so I, I, I'm anxious about what happens after I die. Um, but in life, I think idealism restores meaning uh, to the experiences of the world. It's no longer a cosmic mechanical contraption driven by blind laws and pure chance. Um, now, it's mental imagery and mental imagery has the advantage that it can evoke something else. I mean, when you dream and you have an intense dream and then you wake up from the dream, you don't think that the dream was literally true, right? The first question you ask yourself is what did that mean? 
Well, guess what? If the, if the world is mental, we can ask ourselves that same question right now. What does this mean? And, and, and then life has a meaning, which is the search of the meaning of yeah. what we experience. What is the underlying significance of that? What is it saying? What is it evoking? Uh, are we supposed to learn something? If, if so, what is it? There is a meaning to experience, good or bad, pain or, or, or joy, suffering or, or whatever. Um, so that potential for meaning is definitely restored. And I think it's even an implication of, uh, of idealism that there is meaning. Um, but there is anxiety too, I think. Um, so... I, I noticed that Eben Alexander uh, has written very nice things about your book. And, uh, you know, it seems to resonate uh, with him. He is the, I think he's a neurologist who uh, had a near-death experience and had all these fantastic, really positive uh, experiences. And he wrote a book called... Uh, Heaven is true or something like that? Uh, uh, there is one maps of heaven, but there was one before uh, his first book. I forgot, I forgot the name of his book. Yeah. Uh, heaven is real or something like I mean, yeah. I mean, that. That expresses the uh, general idea. So it, it's one of the most cheerful views of the afterlife that I can possibly imagine. So does that mean that you're, you don't completely buy what, his experience of the afterlife was? It doesn't mean that, no. I actually think, for the record, that uh, what Ibn Alexander wrote in his first book is a sincere and honest account of what he experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that, you know, you and I have had psychedelic experiences. Only people who've been there can smell certain hints of honesty in what others are reporting, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I think what he says, the way he says that, Tiny little inconsequential details to me have the ring of, of truth. I think he did experience that. But I don't think the afterlife is an objective reality um, in the sense that, it, that it's absolute and we just go there and we perceive it. I think it, if all reality is mental uh, and this world is mental, then the afterlife is also mental and it can acquiesce to, to, Maybe your expectations, your dispositions, it can change and, 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 and transfigure itself uh, as a function of what you bring to it, as a function of who you are, in what moment you are, in, in, in the course of your experiential inner life, um, how you react to what you see, what you bring to the table. And I think it is that commerce between whatever is out there and, and whatever we bring to the table, it's that interference pattern, if you will, uh, that, that will evoke the imagery and the experiences that we have. In the case of Eben, uh, it started with a, a bad experience. He calls that the earthworm point of view, I think, a very constricted you know, experience with tones of brown and earth and decomposition and decay. That's how his near-death death experience began. And then he goes to this other level, which is extraordinary, extraordinarily positive. I think his report is true as far as he, his experience is concerned, but I don't see any reason to think that I would have the exact same experience right. because I am a different process in universal mind. And there will be a different kind of interaction with whatever is 
there, you know, after the end of dissociation. Um, and I, there are reports of negative near-death experiences. They're not very talked about, but uh, they are there. Um, I think people in the non-duality circles would say, oh, yes, the experience would just mirror what you bring to it. But at the end of the day, you're always safe. It's just an experience. Your core subjectivity, that which experiences, is untouchable because it's the ground of all existence. And, and I think all of that is true. But, uh, you know, it's one thing to intellectually say, yeah, that must be true. And it's another thing that when you're confronted with the thing, uh, whether you'll be able to stay so cool and so collected by telling yourself, oh, um, nothing can happen to me. Um, all right. You, you've, you've been using the term dissociation. Uh, and um, I, I want to want to get you to spell this out a little more. Um, you had a, a really provocative essay um, for Scientific American in which you talked about multiple personality disorder as a kind of model for understanding how your philosophy can play out in, in uh, this world. So I wonder if you can. Uh, expand on that a little bit and and by the way i think the the so multiple personality disorder is an older term for something that is also called no no the, pardon the me multiple personality disorder is the older term the new term is a dissociative identity disorder yeah right thank you so what what do you mean when you talk about uh, multiple personality disorder as a kind of model for the world yeah Okay, so the idea is to avoid insoluble problems in our philosophy of the world. So by saying that consciousness is fundamental and everything else can be explained in terms of consciousness, I avoid a hard problem. The hard problem is how do you reduce consciousness? Well, guess what? I don't. I take it as primitive and I reduce everything else to consciousness. Now, is that consciousness you're reducing everything else to fundamentally fragmented like mine is totally separate from yours, totally separate from the cricket in my garden. If it is, and each cell in my brain has a tiny little bit of consciousness of its own, and they come together to form my consciousness as a, as a unitary human being, how do those little consciousness com- consciousnesses combine? That's called the combination problem. And there are very good reasons to believe it's as insoluble as the heart problem. So then to avoid this problem too, we say, okay, we reduce everything to consciousness and there is only one consciousness. So we don't need to combine it. It's already combined, so to say. But then we have the decombination problem. If it's all in one consciousness, how come I can't read your thoughts and you presumably cannot read mine? How come I don't know what's happening right now in a far corner of the galaxy of Andromeda? Because this whole thing is in one mind. That was That is what we, one has to explain. And guess what? Empirically, Nature already provided us with the hints. People with dissociative identity disorder have these multiple concurrently conscious centers of awareness or the multiple personalities. Technically, they are are called alters. And for decades, there was doubt. Is this really real? Does this really happen? Aren't these people just confabulating this to get attention? But in the last 10 years, there have been several neuroimaging studies that objectively confirmed the reality of dissociative identity disorder. Um, for instance, there was a study in Germany in 2015, uh, a woman with several alters, some of which claimed to be blind. And when an alter was in control of the body that claimed to be blind, there was no activity in the visual cortex. 
And when an alter that was cited assumed control of the body, boom, that, that activity popped again. And there are studies with fMRIs uh, that allow you to identify those dissociative processes. So I think that is the answer. And nature is giving us very clear empirical reasons to say there is a process in nature, even if we don't understand it very well, there is certainly a process in nature through which what is otherwise a uni- unitary mental space can break itself up apparently into multiple disjoint centers of awareness. Even if we don't understand very well analytically what that is, I think we have some understanding, but not complete. Empirically, we know it exists. And then what I do is, okay, if that exists, uh, parsimoniously, I would take that and I'll extrapolate that to the whole of the universe. And I would say that life, living organisms, are just the appearance, as somebody would measure on an fMRI scanner, but now we are inside the brain of the universe. We don't need a scanner. They are just the appearance of these dissociative processes in universal consciousness. That's what life is. Um, okay, so I, I, I think I might have mentioned this to you when we first met, but um, I, had, I, I had a psychedelic trip back in 1981. You're telling me. During which I, um, I, became, uh, I became the one consciousness that there is. Uh, and, um, you know, I became the singularity. If you, th- if you imagine the whole universe has been turned into one giant computer and, um, and it was really great for a while. Uh, you know, I just thought I can do anything I want. I felt omnipotent. I, and for a while I just thought I'm going to feel as much pleasure as it's possible to feel. And then, uh, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to figure out where I came from, what my own existence is. And, um, and then I started getting really disturbed, and uh, and I realized that there was no answer beyond me. I was all that there was, and I started being worried about my own omnipotence. I started thinking, what if I just imagine that I don't exist anymore? Then that will happen, and I, I became afraid of killing myself. And uh, at that point, it, it was a little murky. I was trying to reconstruct this all. You know, like uh, in the days and weeks afterwards, um, I was in this trance state when this all happened. I became convinced that the world we live in is um, that that the, is created by this God that was freaking out and uh, and didn't want to be confronted with his own divinity, and so shattered into infinite altars uh, that didn't know their own origin. Um, And so when I, so your multiple personality disorder idea seems, you know, normally I I can't talk to people about this experience that I had because they think I'm fucking crazy. (laughs) And, uh, and so whenever I have met people who have, sort of ideas that are in the same ballpark, it makes me feel really good. And I get, I get kind of uh, excited and there are hints of this in, in Gnosticism and the Kabbalah and some other uh, theologies in which something is wrong with God. God is, is uh, disturbed in, uh, in some way, I guess maybe the difference between us is that I felt that, that I was crazy 
and I and that I had to move on with in my life. You know, this is something that I felt viscerally. I I had had an experience of it, and it was very disrupting to my life. You know, I was trying to have a like a romantic relationship and get a job and <laughs> have normal relationships with other people. And to think that, oh my God, we're just altars of this giant psychotic mind was not a helpful thought. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting what you say. I mean, I already knew your story. Um, people who have dissociative identity disorder usually develop it after major trauma. Yeah. Um, a very shocking experience that you can't really reconcile yourself with. And then your mind, which is fundamentally unitary, apparently breaks up into these different altars, which have access to different memories, have different narratives about their own identity, all contents of consciousness. And their experiential content, content cannot access the experiential contents of another altar. There is a disruption of the chain of cognitive associations there. And that's all because of trauma. And that's exactly what you seem to be describing, that the trauma of this universal mind of realizing or, or getting a, a, a whiff of, of, of what it actually is may have led to that. I, I will add something, though, uh, uh, John. Um, I have had a number of psychedelic experiences, um, and I, many things, I think, can be concluded from it. But one, I think, is very certain. It's a very noisy channel. Yeah. One has to be very careful about uh, the noses of psychedelics, if you know what I mean, because the trickster is loose in psychedelic space. Um, one day I will write a book about how the foremost and perhaps the only disposition of mind, not my mind, your mind, but mind as, a, as an ontological category, the foremost disposition of mind is to cheat itself, is to deceive itself. So, uh, I go as far as to say that everything is in mind. I think that's the most certain thing we can say about the nature of self, the world, existence. It is all a play in mind. But after that, what you're going to build on top of it, what is mind exactly doing? How does it work? What's the structure? Haha, <laughs> with that. Because I think it's this fundamental archetype of mind, the, trick is, the trickster, to deceive itself. It's very difficult to conclude anything beyond the it's only mind, if you know what I mean. Well, in, in my case, I, I, I felt it, the way I would interpret what you just said, I completely agree, uh, you know, that our minds play tricks on, uh, on themselves, um, but that that is a kind of survival mechanism that we, we imagine our, our ways out of this, what I experienced as a, as a primal uh, trauma. And um, it gives me a, a very kind of dark view of the whole concept of oneness, you know, the, the metal, metaphysical concept of oneness, that there really is just one mind underlying everything. And this is something that's common uh, to uh, monotheism and also to the, the great uh, Indian religions. And the goal is to get back to the, to God, back to the, you know, the, the universal mind. And, and I'm saying, no, don't do that. It's <laughs> really bad that multiplicity, all the diversity of the world and, and the fat, fantastic nature of the world and even the suffering, you know, uh, that, this view I had, this multiple personality disorder 
theology is a kind of response to the problem of evil, that the world has to be difficult and dramatic and painful and unfair as a kind of distraction from this, uh, this I, I find it identity crisis at the heart of things. Yeah, I find it interesting. I mean, I think I've mentioned it to you before, how seriously you take the problem of evil. For you, it's it's really, you know, a, a, a little pebble in your shoe. It, 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 it is. makes you uncomfortable. Uh, but isn't that because you, you're starting from the assumption that in principle everything should be good? I mean, evil is obviously part of nature, what we call evil, right? Shit happens. Bad stuff happens. People suffer in unbelievable ways. So clearly it's part of nature. I mean, whatever is behind immanent in nature has that as, as a potential. Why is that a problem? Why wouldn't it be so? You know, I think it's, it might be because actually, this is a little bit of a paradox. It's actually because my life is so good. I feel, um, I feel guilty that uh, I've been so fortunate in, in my life. I've never really, you know, I've had hard times like, anybody else i've I've had my heart broken and you know i've been divorced uh, but uh nothing like the suffering that so many people have experienced and um and so you know it it's the paradox that life can be so good and also so horrible and it it makes me uh it, it's it just makes me sensitive to the to the unfairness and and the suffering and i feel like i have to keep pushing my face in it and I don't just think, yeah, life is great because my life has been great. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But listen, here I wanna I wanna bring up another issue, just a kind of general objection, a concern that I have with um non materialist views of the world. Um and this is, you know, so I've already told you I had this kind of ultra idealist uh vision that I took very seriously for a while and I still take seriously, but then there's this rational part of my mind, you know, the scientific American journalist in me says, okay, really that is crazy. Materialism has been so phenomenally successful uh, in terms of explaining the world and giving us power over the world. You know, there's some mysteries that it doesn't explain like how matter generates mind, but it's still a triumph. Uh, especially given that historically, for the most part, humans have been extraordinarily narcissistic in constructing their worldviews. We've just assumed from the start that all of this is for our benefit, that reality was created for us, and the whole universe is the stage for us to act out this drama. And, you know, there's this creator who knows what's going on and um, maybe his purposes are obscure to us, but there is a purpose. And, And then in the Enlightenment, we started moving away from that. But then in the modern era, it keeps coming back, this idea that, that we are the center of things. And I, I see that in, um, in your kinds of philosophies. I see it in something like the anthropic principle, which says that, you know, mind is somehow essential for, for reality. In um, information theories, 
uh, which say that information, which doesn't make any sense without mind, is crucial to reality, and the interpretations of quantum mechanics that say somehow observation is is essential to the construction of reality. I see this. What bothers me about it is that it's, I feel like it's our narcissism reasserting itself. uh, And that's, and that, that bothers me a little bit. So I guess I'm just looking for your response to that. This is rich and there's a lot uh, to comment on. I was going to appeal to Occam's razor, but you just wrote an article in Scientific American saying, well, we should get, take it easy with Occam's razor. You can cut yourself with it. So I'm going to argue in a, in a different direction. By the way, I, I didn't write that article. That was written by um, the guy that I debated at a religion versus science uh, Oh, I thought it was your name. Uh, yeah, I, I and it was my blog, and I introduced him. But he oh. was the, he was the Christian with whom I had this debate. So my uh, previous piece was saying that all theories and theologies that try to solve the mind body problem are inadequate. Okay, okay. So um, let me see. Um, idealism is not solipsism. So. An idealist is not saying my mind, Bernardo Kestrup's mind, is all that exists. And you, John, you're just a phantasm. You're just an appearance. There's nothing it is like to be you. You only exist in so far as what I perceive of you. Uh, you're hollow, so to say. That's not what an idealist say would say. An idealist would say there is fundamentally only one universal mind, and it's me, and it's you, and it's my cat's mind, and it's the amoeba on my toilet's mind. Uh, 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 on my toilet. Uh, it's, it's the amoeba's mind as well. So it, it's not really an anthropocentric view insofar as it basically says that there is only one basic subjectivity and that's the subjectivity that underlies everybody's mind or everything's mind that has uh, a mind, every living creature. Um, so it, it's, it, it doesn't really go back to, to this anthropocentric view that uh, the whole world was built for us human beings, um, you could say that uh, only insofar as you can also say that the whole world has been built for the benefit of bacteria. Uh, know what I mean? Uh, now, having said that, I think the idea that the success of technology, the success of science is to be attributed to materialism or mainstream physicalism, it's the greatest sleight of hand, the greatest that that could have ever happened to promote a certain philosophy. And I think it's completely incorrect. Um, Science is not committed to any particular ontology, to any particular view about what things essentially are. Science is the study of the patterns and regularities of nature's behavior. That's what experiments tell you. I will set up an experiment and I will see what happens. What is it that happens? That thing that happens is a behavior of nature. Nature answers our questions when we set a question up in the form of an experiment through behaving in a certain way. So to have perfectly good science, you do not need to be a materialist or an idealist or a panpsychism or a psychist or a dualist. None of it. That's all extra. As far as science is concerned, it's baggage. The problem is that it's very difficult for human beings to not make an assumption about what things essentially are because it helps them think about what's happening. But science would not stop working if idealism is true. 
everything that we know scientifically would still hold. We would still be able to produce the technology that we produce because technology is based on science, not on philosophy. Technology is once you know how nature behaves, now you know how to put it to work for you, how to put it to work for, to work for your own benefit because you know how it behaves. But you see, uh, a five-year-old kid, five-year-old kid playing a computer game knows exactly how the game behaves and may even win and be the world champion. And, but it doesn't need to understand the underlying software architecture and the hardware and the chips and the circuitry, memories and CPUs. It doesn't need to know any of that to play the game. Science is about playing the game of physical existence very well, knowing that if you do that, then, then that other thing will happen. And it may be good or bad. If it's bad, you avoid it. If it's good, you, you put it to work for you. That's science. Now, of course, the behavior of nature informs us about what it might or might not be. That is for sure. And so philosophy needs to be informed by science. But science does not need philosophy to be carried out. So I think the success of technology over the last 300 years, since the early days of the Industrial Revolution, are not because of materialism. They are because of the scientific method, the study of the behavior of nature. And it wouldn't have been different if we were not materialists. I think materialism helped, materialism helped only a little bit in the beginning because of the prejudices that we had. These prejudices that, uh, that uh, how to say, I, I think the materialist view helped scientists be objective trust experiment as opposed to their own inner speculation. And that was not the case before. We had different prejudices before. So, uh, you know, uh, at some point we thought that uh, uh, heavier bodies would fall faster than light bodies until somebody took the trouble to just test it and see what happens. So all this testing, all this empirical seeing what happens would be the same, even if we were all idealists uh, for the last thousand years. So um, let me just give you a pitch for uh, – I'll, I'll tell you what I did write in that uh, – in, in the blog post that preceded the one on uh, Occam's Razor. And our views were not not that different. Um, but the uh, the point of view that I spelled out, and this is the, the basic theme of, of my book, Mind-Body Problems, is that um, – we just don't know enough and we probably never will know enough to solve the mind body problem once and for all. I see it as a, as a mystery. We have all these ideas about it. Uh, some of which are ancient. I think it's telling that, um, at neuroscience conferences at, at, uh, very sophisticated meetings on the mind body problem held over at NYU right across the river from me, you have people citing Kant and Descartes and, and Buddha, for God's sake. Uh, you know, um, we're, we're reaching way back to these really old ideas. It's quite extraordinary. Um, and no ideas are really off the table now. And, and I think that's to your credit and the credit of some of these other people who are bringing idealism back and, and, um, and pointing out the, the, the flaws of materialism, which are very real, my conclusion is not that, or I just suspect that out of all this disarray, there will not emerge, and I hope there will not emerge, a single paradigm that we, I, I hope we don't all agree that here is the right way of looking at, at this problem. I, I see that 
you know, and the mind body problem, the way I like to think about it is it's the problem of who we really are, what we really are. And that also entails what we can be through technology and new social organizations and what we should be. It entails this moral and ethical dimension. And when I look historically at the consequences of very strong belief in certain paradigms that answer this question, what we really are. Um, I see bad things happening. Wars, inquisitions, genocide, um, and the upside of being, I guess, an agnostic about the mind-body problem is that we are more tolerant of each other. I think you're right that we do... Most of us do need some kind of model for making sense of the world, whether it's ultra materialism or idealism or, you know, Christianity or Islam. Um, but at the same time, I would hope that people become more open minded and recognize that there can't be any final answer to this question. Um, and that means we're free to explore new conceptions of ourselves, uh, new possible identities. And I suspect that there will be new languages that we haven't even imagined yet. This is one of the great things about the, uh, about the invention of computers. They've given us a whole new way of understanding ourselves as hardware versus, versus software and, and cognition as computation and this kind of stuff. And who knows, in, you know, later in this century, there might be new technologies that allow us to conceive of ourselves, give us a language for talking about ourselves that we can't even imagine yet. I Look, I agree with you that, um, that we cannot know for sure that there would not be closure to that extent, that we know for sure and that's it, that's the end of it. There is no reason to believe that the cognitive apparatus of primates on planet Earth on the corner of a very regular uh, vanilla galaxy uh, would develop to the point of apprehending and understanding, or comprehending is better than understanding, because comprehending you encircle it. Uh, uh, everything there is to know about self and world, about what's really going on. That I think I, I am with you that it's fundamentally beyond us to be sure. But I do think that on the basis of what we know, in terms of our logic, our values, you know, parsimony is better than inflationary hypothesis and Hawkins razor. And on the basis of the empirical evidence that we have accumulated thus far, on the basis of all this, I think there are such things as better hypothesis and worse hypothesis. And the problem is that there is always, behind any culture, any civilization, there is always the working hypothesis. And it is the working hypothesis sets the tone for how people think and how people live. I mean, in, in the West, uh, we live in a society of rampant consumerism. I mean, we are so in, immersed in this consumerism that we lost the ability to be, to be shocked about it. We've lost the ability to see how inconceivable this is. I mean, each one of us lives in a way that only kings would have lived only 500 years ago or even 400 years ago. Um, and why is that so? Because, you know, if 
the working hypothesis of a culture, that subliminal thing, that even if you say, I don't agree with it, I'm a Christian, I'm a dualist, you know, underneath that layer of your mind that's telling you that, there's another layer, and that layer, that's what you really believe in, is telling itself, matter is all that exists, so the only game in town is to accumulate objects as fast as I can, as much as I can, because at the end of the day, I'm dead, and then nothing will matter anyway. I mean, this is the operating system we are running on as a culture, even if not individually. And even the people who think that they don't buy into this story behave as if they did, because in a subliminal layer of mind, that's the operating system. That's the little demon running in there. Uh, and I think that's very dangerous because our current working hypothesis for Western civilization, which now dominates the entire world, you go to China and you look at how they live. Their God is money. That's the value system of Western civilization uh, running there. It has dominated the world. And what is underlying this value system of our Western civilization is not the best hypothesis on the table, given logic and given the empirical evidence. And I think that is tragic, even though we cannot be sure we know enough to know that our working hypothesis is not the best one. It's a dead end. And it, and it has percolated through our entire culture, through our entire way of life, through the economy, through politics. It's everywhere. It's like a virus. And I think it's very important that we try to at least reduce the extent of the infection, if you know what I mean. That is very well said. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna disagree with that. I, I think that's a uh, that's a good place to end our conversation with uh, with that kind of you know like a moral objection, as well as an uh, just a rational philosophical objection to uh, to rampant materialism. Yeah. Well, let me just briefly comment on this. I don't think this is the reason to choose idealism. Sure. I think the reason to choose idealism is the logic of it, the empirical evidence. Uh, but if it is the best option, I think we only have to gain if we re- replace mainstream physicalism with it. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I understand that. Um, but our, our philosophical ideas, even if we deny it, almost always um, come with, with these moral and even political uh, implications. And so I'm glad that you spelled that out. Um, anyway, I'm glad you're shaking things up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I, I felt that even though I've written disparagingly about, um, you know, the reemergence of idealism and panpsychism and, and sort of mind-centric uh, philosophies, um, I'm excited about it. It's, it's, I feel like things are, are fracturing in a positive way, and you're really – you're really a part of that, and uh, I applaud you for it. Right in the pages of Scientific American, for God's sake. <laughs> By the way, there's a new essay coming on next week on Scientific American. Well, I'll just look in the uh, most read list, and I'm sure I'll see what's up there. <laughs> it was great talking to you again, John. It's been over a year since we sat together for a drink and, and some talk. Maybe you should do that, do, do that in person again sometime soon. I would like that anytime. Before you go, a quick message from the Suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. 
Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.